Hey, welcome. This is the Gentle Rebel podcast where we talk about navigating life's harsher edges with a spirit of compassionate creativity. I'm Andy Mort. I'm a songwriter and creativity slow coach, and I love exploring the power that gentleness can have in helping us change the world from the inside out. What do you feel right now? What do you need right now? What would you love right now? Sometimes it feels like all we can see around us is is cloud. But the cloud is usually only visible to us because it has some light glowing through it from behind. And this is what I want to talk about in this episode. That cloud, that sensory overwhelm that we might have from the constant flood of external information and news and uh, the ways that we engage with those things in the modern world and to kind of part those clouds to see what lies beyond them. We're holding an increasingly heavy collective weight right now. The past few years have contained what's felt like a a really concentrated flow of dread. And I want to think about what this does to us, how this stacks in our life, the signs that we might look out for um, as we're drifting towards overwhelm. And I want to consider some of the ways that we might stack some intentional uh, joy and peace and calm and other things around our lives in order to to break down some of that dread and to make us more effective and creative and intentional and gentle in the face of uh, life's news so that we don't inadvertently add to the dread uh, for ourselves and for other people as well. We spoke about this topic at a recent um, Haven Cotter session and I shared an analogy at the start. I'd been kind of doing a lot of research uh, around sensory overwhelm, especially um, in relation to coping with uh, digital clutter and news and information overload and all of that stuff. And I noticed that a lot of the resources that I came across focused on uh, or kind of approached it with language around things like limiting um, uh, exposure to certain things, controlling uh, parts of our lives and challenging certain actions and thoughts and habits that we might have. And I was kind of struck by this this thought that, you know, all of that is obvious. We we all know what we need to avoid. We all know kind of what's bad for us. You know, this, this comes up in so many uh, different uh, areas of our life, doesn't it? And yet our thumb or my thumb still goes to the doom scroll. It still goes to the social media, even though I know this is not going <laughs> to be good. For, this is not going to make me feel better. This is not going to uh, help me sort of get out of this, this drifting fog that I'm in. You know, we still gaze at the screen for hours, watching things that we know are making us angry, sad, afraid, anxious, unable to function in the ways that we would choose to function if we uh, could, could sort of make everything ideal. In fact, the more that we say we shouldn't do those things, the more likely we are to do them. And so the analogy was like driving a vehicle or if you're cycling or skiing or rowing or running or walking or whatever, you move towards what your eyes are focused on. So the worst thing to do if you want to avoid something is to uh, focus on it, to look at it. And yet that's what we seem to do in so many uh, areas of life. It's the same thing that causes us to to eat even more when our diet fails or causes our diet to fail because we're focused on what it is that we're not able to eat, we're not allowed to eat, or to engage in a, uh, a bad habit or a, a greater rate once our willpower um, runs out. 
The best way to avoid things that we don't want to hit is to focus on where we want to go instead, to focus on uh, the road up ahead. When you do that, you will avoid the tree as a byproduct uh, of, of, of focusing somewhere else. We will bear this idea in mind as we think about this topic of sensory overwhelm in the face of information overload, of information stacking. Avoiding information is, is like looking at the tree. The question is, you know, where do we want to go instead? What is that vision? What is that place to which we are heading? Not that we're going towards a destination, but we are moving in a direction that we want to be more intentional about choosing. And these are not questions to answer right now, but like we often do on the podcast, they're questions to to kind of just carry with us over the next few days, next few weeks and beyond. You know, allow them to gently speak to you over time, not from a spirit of uh, urgency and instant reaction and and a need to to have the answers to them right now, but of just soft probing and infusing of life. What do I want instead of this overwhelming feeling? What sits beyond the cloud? What is it that's drawing me forwards in life? What actually matters to me? You may be feeling like you can't experience joy. You may be lacking a sense of desire. Maybe everything has this cloud hanging over it right now as you think about all of these things that have added up, the news, the information, the stuff going on in the world around you. It just feels so murky. Maybe you feel guilty when you experience joy or contentment in any way or when you feel like you can't watch anything anymore. Maybe you're desensitized and disconnected from what you see that in previous times would have moved you emotionally or caused you uh, a great sense of empathetic pain. Maybe you're even looking at the car crash events of the world around you, unconsciously enjoying the stories of excessive behaviors and extreme events. You can't seem to look away. You're kind of excited in a really perverse way to open your phone and see what's going on and you're secretly disappointed when figures you love to hate and get outraged by disappear from view and i hope that by the end of this episode you'll be feeling receptive to reconnect with who you are beneath this noisy moment and as i say just allow the words to wash over and through you and land where they need to. Don't try and force anything. Let go of things that don't resonate right now um, and know you can always come back in the future. Uh, As we'll explore, things land differently at different moments and on different days and that's fine. So just carry those three questions as well that Jacob Nordby asks as part of his sort of self-awareness journaling practice. What do you feel right now? What do you need right now? What would you love right now? These are going to be important questions to, uh, to become aware of our responses to uh, as we go through this stuff. So what do I mean by this term dread stacking? I'm talking about the buildup of unprocessed information from the world around us. It's the restless and endless string of painful stories from situations, events, changes happening around the world. You know, the world is so fast paced and attention moves from one thing to the next very quickly because there's so much happening. You know, we've got access instantly to everything um, that is being reported everywhere 
in the world. Um, and even though the news and social media seem able to uproot from one thing and dive headlong into the next story of the week or day, it doesn't mean that we can do that as humans, or it doesn't mean that there isn't a cost to trying to do that as humans. Stories appear to be gone because they've disappeared from view, but these stories are not truly gone. They leave um, a residue. They leave heartbreak, anxiety, overwhelm, a sense of inadequacy, a sense of hopelessness um, and and dread and fear and all of these other things um, that kind of meld together in this great mixing pot of emotion. Dread stacking gives us the sense that we are responsible for everything and everyone. It plays into this already present overt sense of responsibility that a lot of highly sensitive people have for people, for things, for events, for situations. We think we must stop what we are doing and either pay full attention to what's going on or work out how to solve the problem. But this is unsustainable for all manner of reasons. And the overcorrection might lead to disengagement, which is in the interests of many people, um, but not in the interests of humanity, not in the interests of ourselves. We need sensitive people engaged, involved and in making their gentle differences in small ways all over the world. It's also worth bearing in mind that dread stacking is fueled by a commercial media infrastructure that rewards stories that evoke the extreme ends of human emotion. You know, we click on engage with and react to stories that evoke things like anger, sadness, outrage, loneliness, uh, resentment, fear. You know, stories are not presented in ways designed for us to kind of absorb them in healthy ways and kind of manage them and integrate them into the way that we think about what we're doing in life. They're created in order to make us feel extreme emotions so that we keep clicking, gawking, provoking, reacting, dividing ourselves as a society. In the midst of a swamp of dread, it becomes very difficult to focus. We might even lose our connection to our own desire. When we're told that everything matters and is of utmost urgency, we cannot hold the meaning of things and so nothing ends up mattering. We become cynical, we stop trusting people we fall down rabbit holes that we wouldn't choose to go down if we took a moment to just pause and ask ourselves, you know, do I really need to engage with this subject in this way? I've seen people say, uh, if you're not distressed by the way things are right now, then you need to wake up. Or um, I don't trust anybody who isn't in a state of panic about the world right now. And I absolutely get this. Um, but what are we expecting from one another when we, when we judge one another? in this sort of way? Is this a healthy or helpful spirit from which to operate, to address the way that things are? Is anything positive built in the long run from a place of distress? You know, if waking up means entering a state of urgent panic, anxiety and distress about everything, why would anyone want to do anything except for sleep? What do you feel right now? What do you need right now? What would you love right now? There's a wonderfully twisted scene in Twin Peaks The Return uh, when we see this stuff quite starkly. It revolves around a house where Dougie, the current manifestation of one of the main characters, Dale Cooper, uh, lives. And he's a person of interest to a number of parties who all converge at the same moment on the same day. And it culminates in this amazing scene that just plays out in the most unexpected ways when you're watching it for the first time. Um, so the FBI are looking for him and they're parked up the street. There's a hit out on him. So there are two assassins, Chantel and Hutch, waiting in a van for him opposite his house. 
but none of them are aware that Dougie is actually at the moment in a coma in hospital after shoving a metal fork in a plug socket. Um, so the final two to arrive are Bradley and Rodney, who are two Las Vegas casino owners, um, big-hearted but mobster bosses um, that Dougie has has helped by settling a huge insurance claim for. Um, they arrive, they unload a jungle gym for his son uh, and loads of food to fill the pantry. They are aware where Dougie is and they're doing what they can to support the family as he rests and recovers in hospital. So a, a white car arrives at the house opposite and the driver is not amused to find Hutch and Chantel's van parked I don't know, a few inches or a foot or so over his drive. Uh, plenty of room for him to get onto his drive, but he takes exception to this. Um, and Chantel argues that they're not in his driveway, shouts a few obscenities at, at the man in the car, uh, who we identify as an accountant from the side. He's got a little label on the side of his car. He seems to get up and get back into his car and you think, oh, maybe he's just sort of giving up, but he's not done. <laughs> he decides to ram the van with his car so it's no longer uh, over his driveway. And given what we know about the reckless and ruthlessness of Chantel and Hutch, this strikes us as, as a really bad idea. Um, the FBI, remember, are still down the street looking on, um, kind of watching what's going on. And as anticipated, Chantel does, uh, doesn't like what the accountant does so pulls out a gun and shoots him through the window the accountant gets out of the car goes to the back of it where he opens the uh, the boot and he reappears and shoots at the van with a automatic weapon hutch has a go at chantel for messing the plan up uh, while pulling out a gun and getting involved himself they decide okay let's drive off let's forget about this for today um, Chantel then rams the car with the van. The accountant gets hit a bit. They drive off past the accountant who gets up and starts firing his weapon at the back of the van, just like peppering it uh, with bullets. And Chantel and Hutch reach a, a grisly end as the van comes slowly rolling past the two FBI agents who are looking on like, what's going on here? Um, and then it sort of halts at a pole. I think it's like a telegraph pole or something. Um, and then the FBI agents arrest the accountant, who is willingly uh, puts his hands up and, and off they go. And then it cuts to Bradley and Rodney, the, the grateful casino boss mobsters. And Bradley says, what kind of crazy neighborhood is this? And Rodney replies, people are under a lot of stress, Bradley. And I love this scene because I think it just it encapsulates like a true glimpse of modern life. How something as innocuous as someone deciding that someone is encroaching on their space can lead to this wild moment where everybody loses their minds and do, they just do things that are completely destructive to one another and to themselves. And to me, this, this line at the end is perfect. It, it seems completely absurd, like a, a, an absurd conclusion to reach. Um, at first, because the, the violent mobster is perturbed by how violent this quiet suburb seems to be. Um, and this idea that people are under a lot of stress. And it's like, yeah, that's true. And that explains this moment. Um, and, you know, you're thinking, surely it's, that these people are just crazy. But no, it's an analysis that looks at the conditions people are under as contributing to the things that they do. Stress makes people do crazy things. And when people do crazy things, the world gets more stressful. And so this cycle kind of comes into being. 
This is why I think it's so important for us to look at, uh, to think about the impact of the world's stress on us, to look at the symptoms of this stuff, to see how it's affecting ourselves, see how it's affecting others, to see how it's affecting us as a collective, and to look up and notice the ledges that we're drawn or pushed towards in life. The invitation to do crazy things when we are pulled there. And that scene is demonstrating a symptom rather than a problem. It's not about people like this. It's about what people do when they're living in conditions like this. And I think of scenes like this when I encounter the symptoms of people's overflowing capacity in my personal life. You know, we've probably all had experiences like this uh, with someone who maybe lashes out with, with kind of insults and criticisms based on the fact that you haven't considered their particular position in this particular moment or whatever. And it can hurt. You know, they think anyone who's not seeing things through their eyes is being ignorant or naive or selfish. And in our latest um, Haven Cotter conversation, I shared um, about an email that I'd received a little while ago to a, uh, as a response to a mailing list um, newsletter that I'd sent out. And yeah, it really stopped me in my tracks. It felt incredibly jarring with its spirit of hostility. It was a a quite aggressive reaction to what I had written and called me ignorant and uh, was was calling me out essentially for not considering this particular situation that this particular person was in, um, in relation to this topic that I had written about. And these kinds of things usually send me into a, a tailspin of shame. And this was no different on this occasion. It was a, re- it was a really painful email to receive. Um, it felt like an attack on me personally. And it, it sort of, I suppose, triggered the thing that for me is never far from my mind when I'm writing or talking, which is, you know, what about people for whom this isn't um, relevant? Or what about people who are not in a position to think about this or, uh, or whatever, like the attempt to try and speak to everybody, uh, which as we know, if you try and talk to everybody, you, you end up talking to nobody. And so this drive to second guess everyone's situation and context has often led me to a place of, of writer's block or publisher's, publisher's block, uh, where the fear of offending someone for whom the message isn't um, kind of written outweighs the courage to speak to people for whom the message is written. But I've learned to put kind of space between receiving these kinds of responses or emails and, and, and my res- like process of responding to them. I walk away, I sleep on it, I return a day or more later to take another look. And often when I go back and reread what's been sent to me, it it looks kind of different. (laughs) It's not quite as harsh, maybe, as my brain interpreted it first time. Sometimes it still lands the punch, but I'm just maybe in a slightly different headspace, ready to respond uh, with that firm back and soft front of gentleness that we've talked about. And I like to respond because I like people to know that there is a human on the other end. I think there's a, an important sense of accountability that can take place by just receiving that, by re- getting that response back and, and realizing, oh, yeah, I wasn't just shouting into the ether. Um, and so the approach I take to the response will vary depending on you know, what has been said. I take responsibility for my own words. Um, I will you know, listen to what they've said. Um, And then use questions to encourage the other person to take responsibility for theirs, for the approach they've taken to their response. And what's interesting is that uh, so often it's either the end of the conversation, and I'll I'll respond and won't hear anything back, or it opens up like a much more gentle path. You know, in the case of the email I mentioned, it transpired that 
I'd just been maybe in the wrong place at the wrong time or the right place at the right time, depending on uh, how you look at it. So took this, you know, the, the full force of this reaction um, to a terrible situation that this person was in, that they were going in, going through, that they were in the midst of. Um, and I was just there as this, you know, this thing that could then take this expression of pain that they were going through. Um, and the content of my email had triggered something in them. And that was the point of explosion for them. Uh, they were lonely, uncertain, afraid, lost, all of these things. I was a stranger on the internet, landing in their inbox with a message that that just jarred with their current emotional state. So I took the hit. Um, and when I replied, it opened up this kind of brief exchange where they were at first surprised that I'd replied. Um, and then there was a kind of gratitude that I'd been able to see beneath the surface of their pain fueled reaction. Like there was a bit of shame in that reaction from their, on their part. Um, and I was able to offer this moment of compassion, uh, to see them as them, um, which allowed them to untangle a few things as they used a couple of emails to, to figure out a way to navigate what had been an overwhelming stack of dread, uh, just one thing layering on top of another in their life. And they'd been con- completely consumed by the weeds and they were like trying to fight their way out. And, you know, obviously my, uh, my inbox received the brunt of that. Um, and I'm not saying this to, to make me sound good in any way, uh, but more of a reminder to myself and hopefully an encouragement to you that when it feels like people are blasting us with personal insults, it is sometimes maybe even often more about them than us, more about their situation than than us um and it's okay to feel hurt by those things and it's not about shutting ourselves off to the pain that comes from being blasted but we can choose how we approach those situations those relationships and moments uh, by putting as much time as we need in between that stimulus and our response and not to react and make the issue worse you know that immediate thought was wanting to fire back to defend to justify what i'd written to call them out for their aggression and to prove them wrong essentially but that rarely if ever helps anything and that is kind of one of the 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 core issues within the dread stacking um idea is that we can instantly react to things we can instantly react to people who are having a a hard day having a bad day who have just sort of you know maybe used social media to express something without really thinking it through or thinking through the consequences of doing that and then we just we just add to the spiral of that by reacting to it and it gets worse and worse and it gathers momentum and becomes huge and it becomes that scene in twin peaks before we know it some people advocate for just ignoring emails like that and and that might be what we need to do but i think there's also something really uh, important to be said for holding people accountable to for those things that they say not to meet their words on those terms but to bring compassion gentleness and and that sort of sense of being seen through good faith to the party to assume the best in people um to remember that people are under a lot of stress but also to remind them that there is someone on the end of their uh, outburst on the end of that that moment of of rage or expression or whatever um yeah so one major cause of stress is information <laughs> it's information it's also the way that information is presented the demand to carry so much in us the fact that it's 
constantly flowing into and through us and this demand to care about all of it as well. It's an overwhelming stress to hold. So what do we do with all the information? As I say, there's a lot of it. How do we distinguish between what we need to know and what we don't need to know? And beyond that, how do we engage with the part of us that connects with stuff we don't need to know more than the stuff that we do need to know? This is where it gets kind of messy. Why do we seem to spend such a long time down rabbit holes of stories that don't affect us at all? Why are we obsessed with celebrities, scandal gates, (laughs) and all manner of things that really in the long term zoom forwards a certain amount of time you won't remember those those things those people whatever and in our uh, haven session we spoke about what being informed means to us and i wonder what you think of when you when you hear that word what does the the idea of staying informed or be, keeping informed or being informed mean to you we talked about how uh, being truly informed is is not just about knowing things it's about connecting feeling connected we're more connected than ever to the world of information and knowledge and this has actually left us less connected to one another and if we think about it one of the main purposes of being informed is so that we can better connect and engage with the world with one another and with the future another way of thinking of what it means to be informed is recognizing that there's a broad range of voices expert analysis and opinions on the things that are going on And being informed is about knowing how to receive and engage with information. It's about being a critical thinker and knowing there are different ways to to read and engage with sources of information. This means freeing ourselves from the need to know everything about everything because it helps us to recognize that it's impossible to do that. And everything that we know comes through certain lenses, certain filters. Um, And so it's recognizing, okay, just that as a as a as a mechanism uh, is is being informed we talked about competitive conversation how we've conditioned ourselves to see interactions not as opportunities for deeper growth and connection and evolution of thought but as things we think of in terms of winning and losing like everything is a sales pitch or a, a court case we might like see that everything is about bringing people around to our way of thinking and then We've got to align with one side or the other when we're listening to other people converse. And in this sense, another source of information overwhelm is that we must not only be informed, but we must have a strong opinion that we're able to defend in an argument. There are questions about why staying informed by things outside is important and where the line is when it comes to identifying how much information constitutes being informed. You know, we can't quantify or define this. But what I think we can say is that if we attach a judgment value to the idea of being informed, we're more likely to be subservient to information and to not take control over defining our own boundaries, our own parameters when it comes to how much and how we hold uh, that information. You know, thinking again about that road, what are we moving towards? Are we veering off towards all of these different things that are saying, look at me, focus on me? Or are we sort of catching them in our peripheral vision as we drive towards something uh, that matters most to us, the, the, the core vision for our life? We're not wired to receive all this information so instantly. We're not wired to hold everything from all around the world and to care about it all. We're able to handle like local information that's useful 
for staying safe and connecting within local communities of belonging. And we're wired to do something with that information, preparing for bad weather, caring for someone in need, getting ready for some kind of event or situation that's going on or responding to an immediate threat in our vicinity. Anger, sadness and anxiety are normal and natural responses to the events and stories that we see on our screens and experience in our personal lives. But the way that we gather our news is far from normal and natural. 24-7 rolling news, social feeds, desperate, as we say, for eyeballs and attention. Designed to keep us looking at them, keep us clicking, keep us engaging. A constant flow of breaking information, expert analysis and the infinite online forum of of ego-fueled debate. This is really hard for highly sensitive people because of our naturally wider aperture, where we absorb more information, we process things at a deep level, and it's overwhelming when we really care about the state of things as well. When everything feels important, everything that other people care about enough to highlight makes an impression. Wouldn't it be nice to be able to hold all of it? But we can't. And if we try, we end up being less able to make an impact or even affect anything because we're in a state of overwhelmed paralysis. It's helpful to think about how we might process information and news so that it doesn't become left to stack up as uh, unprocessed, unexamined dread. It's possible to find a sense of agency and power whilst remaining aware of and positively engaged with news from around the world. But we have to be intentional about it and we have to start from a place of surrender, a, a place of weakness, a place of admitting our own limitations, our own capacity. We cannot possibly hold it all. We cannot possibly affect everything. We cannot possibly change everything. We can't know all there is to know. And if we try, we end up burning out and rendering ourselves useless for the things that we can affect change in. The things that do matter to us. Notice the difference between the information rabbit holes that we can go down. You know, what is the cost of spending my time in this uh, rabbit hole of information? What's that costing me? What's that costing my relationships, my attention, my energy, all of the other things that it might cost? And what's the payoff? You know, are we digging into something which actually 12 months down the line is going to be a really important thing to know? Something that we will feel satisfied having spent our time researching or worrying about? Or are we digging just simply into the topic of today, the thing that everybody's talking about? Why? Just because we feel like we should know about it. So we're forever trying to keep up. And this is an endless, endless cycle. And I don't know about you, but I can get lost in wonderful rabbit holes of learning and discovery, creativity and exploration. And these are the ones that you, you just feel that sense of expansion and excitement and enthusiasm inside. You sort of feel this sense of being drawn back to yourself. But then I can also get lost in rabbit holes of the events of today. As if me trying to learn everything about whatever it is that's going on right now and learning all the intricate details that I can never like know enough about and there are, you know, there's, there's no need for me to know about them. 
just takes up all this time that I could spend and invest in the things that I can affect, the things that do matter to me, the things that I am passionate about growing within as well. You know, wouldn't I be more effective and more energized if I allowed myself Yes, to notice those trees, those road signs, the other cars that I'm driving past, those things that are going on in the world, but without needing to drive towards each and every one of them and become an expert in all of those things. Because actually that just stops me from being able to get to where it is that I can affect the most change, that I can be the most me. So I guess the question I want to explore is whether we can change the equation at the heart of our relationship with information. From something like, you know, information plus dread digging plus reactivity equals overwhelm to something more akin to information plus margin plus creativity equals deepened awareness and effectiveness. Uh, That might just sound like nonsense, but this is what we're kind of exploring here. How can we process information? How can we know how much is enough, how much we need um, and how can we avoid just digging into the dread, becoming reactive, getting overwhelmed and actually choose instead to add the margin, add the creativity, add the processing of the stuff so that we can become deepened in our awareness and more effective in the way that we live. We can begin to recognize the difference between types of information that we're building our lives around. You know, is it, is it our information? These breadcrumbs that we're following, are they from a place of inner expansion, creative curiosity, that sense of, oh, this is sort of drawing me on? Or have the breadcrumbs been put down by someone else intended to maybe intentionally draw us away from our own state of being, our own depths? You know, the latter is impossible to keep up with. There are always going to be breadcrumbs going in all manner of different directions towards all manner of different things. Whereas the former is the route to our own passions and purposes from which we can be more effective. We can affect change and that can have an infectious um, uh, effect on the world around us. It's so very difficult to filter what we need to know from what we can't do anything with. Many of us carry a degree of conscientiousness and a desire to stay informed at some level. And even if it's not a conscious choice, Highly sensitive people, especially naturally and subconsciously, scan the world for signs of danger. This is happening all the time in the background. It's not something you can turn off. Um, So it's worth having a think about the four characteristics of sensory processing sensitivity in the context of uh, information stacking and and news and digital clutter and all of this stuff uh, that we are experiencing in our modern world right now. What do you feel right now? What do you need right now? What would you love right now? So let's start with that D from the D-O-E-S acronym of sensory processing sensitivity, Uh, the deeper processing. When you process things deeply, what might be the impact of fast flowing news and information on you? We spent time in our Cotter session talking about Bill Allen's image of this, uh, the, the wide or the open aperture of high sensitivity and the fact that sensory processing sensitivity means more information gets in because the lens receives a greater amount of light. That's the the image that, that I really think it like works very well when we're thinking about, you know, receiving all this information and deeper processing. We also thought of this with a couple of other uh, metaphors as well or analogies. The idea of a bucket that fills up really quickly 
which is great for thinking about the unprocessed dread. It's just one thing on top of another in this bucket that has a, a finite capacity. It fills up and eventually the lid is just going to blow off unless we're regularly uh, sifting what's inside. We're taking things out that we, we don't need to have in there anymore and, and going through that, that kind of habit of processing regularly. And there was also the idea of information being like um, huge raw image files uh, to highly sensitive people that take up a massive amount of, of hard drive space and uh, processing power. These kinds of files, they put a higher load on our CPU, our, our central processing unit. Our system cannot cope with too many of these being open at one time. And if we try to open every image wanting to be looked at, the whole system is going to crash because it doesn't have the capacity to run all of these things, especially at the same time. But if we focus on one at a time and allow the system to process and render each one, we can experience it in a more profound more creative, more meaningful, more constructive way. I wonder whether any of these metaphors work for you. Maybe it's something else altogether. I'd, I'd be really interested to hear sort of what, uh, what lands with you when it comes to thinking about this from, a, uh, I suppose, a, a creative metaphorical perspective. Um, we can also think about the kinds of files that we're opening up in our lives. And we can ask ourselves, you know, where might we um, be able to let go of or hold less tight um, when it comes to information that is coming in all the time into our lives, what are the aspects that we don't need to clutter our hard drive with? You might be aware of how information overload and dread stacking impacts you. Maybe you recognize some of the things that, that make it worse. For me, a while back, I realized I could free some hard drive space in my own life by removing exposure to sources of deliberate provocation and also people who react to deliberate provocation. And this has become such a massive part of the media machine over the past few years, where the reactions and the positioning in response to news has actually become an area of news in itself. But it distracts us, it burns us out faster, because this part runs on absolute pure emotion. The clickbait that we're familiar with, headlines that get you riled up before you've even read any of the words of the article or watched the video, puts you in a position in relation to the news before you even engage with the news. You know, if I feel that before I've engaged with it, before I've sort of read any of the content or listened or watched any of the content, that's a barometer for me that tells me whether or not it's going to be useful to me. It's easier said than done, of course, because psychologically these headlines they're kind of like junk food. Clickbait is like junk food. It's, you know, if we're already feeling tired, it's really tempting to just click on it. Um, to consume the junk and often we do it without thinking um, and there's something about that sort of the provoking of of outrage or provoking of the emotion that when we're already fatigued when we're already tired we are more susceptible to it and it's far easier than kind of going after something more intentional and nutritious the second characteristic of sensory processing sensitivity is the o uh, for overstimulation and so exposure to lots of information obviously leave us drained, over aroused, overstimulated. Um, and this leaves us less able to function properly. And I think this is probably a good place to talk about the symptoms that we might notice, the, the symptoms that tell us that we are maybe inside a, um, a cycle of dread or we're starting just a, a, a kind of a, on the road to overwhelm, uh, maybe not relating in a healthy way to information that's coming in. 
some of the things we talked about in our session uh, that people have noticed as as symptoms, um, things like physical signs of might be tension, um, tight tightness within our body, like just a that's that sort of sense of not being able to, I don't know, being clenched up, I suppose. Um, increased heart rate, blood pressure, just feeling anxious, those sorts of things. Um, then in terms of mindset or thought processes, um, being kind of drawn to doom scrolling, hopping between tasks, procrastination, uh, engaging in busy work, not able to access flow very easily. Um, anxiety is is its own thing. The feeling that you've got to do something, but you just don't know what. Um, it's this kind of frenetic, um, it's frenetic need, this frenetic sense of uh, being completely not at peace at all. Um, and it, yeah, it might also be that I don't feel like doing anything. I'm, I'm tired, but I need to know more. Um, shutting down is another thing that we might notice that we're doing. Uh, it might be just not listening, not taking anything in, um, even, even good things. We might be sort of just feeling a bit numb to stuff, disconnected from the world around us. And then desensitization. Uh, this is something I noticed, like the, the sense of odierism when you're encountering information or you're watching the news and it's just like, oh dear, like something else is going on. And you're, but you're either dehumanizing the, the kind of subject of the news or you're you're desensitized to the feeling that you would normally have in relation to something. Um, and, and that can happen, uh, at the level of, you know, the news that we, um, encounter sort of through the media, but it can also be in our personal life as well. You hear about something terrible that's happened to a, a friend or some, somebody, you know, whatever. And you're just like, Oh dear. Um, that's a symptom. Doing more of the action that feeds the overwhelm, um, believing that enough of it is going to kind of take me out. You know, it's that that sense of like whatever it is the quote attributed to Einstein about um, insanity being doing the same thing, expecting different results. It's that sort of that sort of yeah thing can be a symptom of just overwhelm. Often, if I if only I do enough of it, then eventually I will be free. Um, so yeah, I wonder how dread stacking shows up as a symptom for you. What are the symptoms that tell you you need to stop and do some processing? Awareness comes from noticing these symptoms and being aware when they're creeping in, you know, noticing when they're just starting to sort of arrive because often it's too late when the symptom fully forms. We're kind of, we're disconnected from that ability to access joy very easily. We might be disconnected from our sense of, of desire and hope at that point. So it's about recognizing, okay, yeah, oh, I can see that that's sort of starting to creep in here and then getting things in place so that we can just pull ourselves back uh, from the brink of overwhelm in that sense. Um, the third part of the DOES is the emotional um, responsiveness and empathy. So dread stacking isn't just a cognitive thing. It's not just something our minds you know, struggle to hold all the information that, that comes in. It's a kind of physiological thing as well. It's an emotional thing. When we see the suffering of other people, we feel it. We feel it at a deep level. Obviously not the exact pain that someone else is experiencing, but a connection to something really at the heart of 
humanity, that, that connection, that emotional connection. And when this builds without proper processing, it can clutter our beings. It can render us unable to function properly, unable to feel properly. And again, the desire to help, to care, to protect and so on cannot be satiated at the level of this global flow of information. We have a buildup of emotion to situations that we cannot affect personally. Things we only know about because of this modern age, the internet, rolling news. And while there's something amazing about the transparency that this offers for things that would have, you know, in days gone by, gone unreported, unnoticed, we don't have the emotional capacity to hold everything that needs to be held everything that wants to be held, everything that's being given to us to be held. And this might mean that we struggle to give ourselves to the very things that we can impact in more ways than just an acknowledgement or an oh dear. And then sensitivity to subtleties, it's the S in the D-O-E-S. A healthy society has a mixture of roles fulfilled by its many members. With different roles come different rhythms and circles of influence. There are high vibration actors who might get things done quickly. There are the strategists who create plans for action. And there are the artists and the philosophers who shape the collective values and ensure that we are moving in a healthy direction. But the problem is a lot of this has been turned upside down. So we are steering from the front. You know, action is what defines the direction that we move. We're focused on the tree. We're focused on the signpost, on the lamppost, and reactions set the pace of that, mo- of, that, of that movement. There's no time to pause and think. And so artists and philosophers have had to become content creators, for example, sometimes as polemic influencers, captains of teams that gather around particular identities or status symbols in order to put food on the table. And that's the way that we do it. And all that's to say is that we're not steering or powering ourselves from a healthy place or to a healthy place in a healthy direction. There's no apparent option for sensitivity to shape and infuse culture with authentic depth and wisdom right now. Highly sensitive people are sensitive to subtleties when afforded the space and time they're integral to humanity's collective survival mechanism. I've been shocked by the number of times I've heard leaders say things like, none of us could have foreseen these unprecedented events and nobody could have seen this coming. To absolve themselves of responsibility. And they're talking about things that people have been warning about for years. So if that's really the case, who had distinct lack of the right people in the most important place or the places that they needed, or there are rewards for staying silent, Because more often than not, there are people noticing the subtleties and warning about the potential risks all the time. But it's more convenient to ignore them. We seem to reject an invitation towards awareness, choosing instead to live in a constant state of alertness. Alertness is a state of hyper-reaction, whereas awareness is a state of deep connection. The alert person reacts to shifts in sensory input right now, Whereas the aware person is engaged with and connected to the environment so that they respond positively and unconsciously to the subtle shifts around them. It doesn't serve humanity. It doesn't serve us individually to be on high alert all the time. A life of urgent reactivity never ends. We're using up all our energy on emergencies. We 
never set anything in place to build strong and solid foundations for a future that we want to choose to move towards instead. We live life forever in the shadow of one crisis after another. But the way we organise our information is to make it a system that puts you on high alert all the time, rather than encouraging a mature and a deep-rooted sense of awareness and connection to things, we're conditioned to see the imminent threat of everything all the time. But the true danger here is catharsis. To most people it feels like the boy who cried wolf when they experience the hyped-up urgency of information. The way that we uh, display and share and pound the world with information because for the vast majority of people there is no sign of this imminent urgent danger when we leave the house and walk around things feel relatively peaceful and normal most of the time there's a sense of things carrying on the world turning like it always does people getting on with things just like usual yes there are changes in the world around us we might have to adapt to certain shifts in circumstances we might notice things just sort of changing around us. There might be different things on our minds, but there are these strands of normality as well. And so there's this cognitive dissonance that, that kind of builds, that breeds this distrust of information, like the boy who cried wolf, where everything is overhyped, urgent and demanding instant reactions. We're not growing the deep roots that are required to build a better tomorrow. And we're, what we are building is cynicism, distrust and a sense of disconnect to tomorrow we're not connecting dots or seeing the role that we play ourselves as an audience in the news cycle as well so yeah i guess this is another side to the way that we organize and share and engage with information in our modern world so can we move this conversation to a place that feels good to us i feel yeah very aware that this is this is perhaps a, a bit of a doom <laughs> a doomy episode um, but our, our Cotter conversation did that for me. And I, I know from speaking to other people afterwards, there was a sense of real, um, of real hope and something positive that came out of uh, exploring this stuff. Um, and I hope to convey some of the things that we talked about that, that helped in that respect. So how might we engage with and process information in healthier ways that help us to remain engaged and energized? How can we avoid dread stacking and connect with life's joy and beauty. Firstly, I think we can be part of making space for one another to have safe conversations. You know, this was mentioned in our, in our session that for some people, um, processing and thinking requires an extern externalization of things. We explore the nuances of uh, ideas, of things going on in the world around us by talking them through. And that might mean we say things that aren't an opinion while we're working out what our opinion might be. And in some places, there's a, a sense of this being not safe, not a safe thing to do. Uh, we might get quoted or pigeonholed or held to that as if it's like a statement of our truth or whatever. So with this in mind, uh, we can be gracious with each other and allow space for uh, a more unguarded processing. In itself, this could be a great relief because it means we're not having to second guess and double think before we process our thoughts you know fear of saying the wrong thing can itself create more layers of overwhelm and noise another part of this is nurturing conditions for uncertainty unsurety and curiosity allowing ourselves to live within the imperfections of our own knowledge the things that we lack and being okay with that 
being compassionate towards ourselves and towards others. Remembering that if we need to know everything and come with a hard and fast opinion to every conversation, that we need to have evidence to support. It's not going to be a good conversation. Nothing interesting is going to happen in that conversation. No one's going to listen. No one's going to grow. There's going to be no aha moments or tankishpian, just safely ideological or provocative positions. You know, either we say what we're supposed to or what we think we're supposed to, or we cynically pick apart everything and don't think about the value of any of it. We spend a lot of time in conversations where people are talking to be heard, but no one's really listening. But we know good conversation is learning. Oh, I never thought about that before. Or I never thought about it like that before. Conversation can feel good. It can be nourishing. So many things can. We just need to put ourselves in places where those kinds of things grow and happen, where they're more likely, creating those conditions for that to occur, where we can finish a conversation, walk away validated and accepted as humans, regardless of of what we do or don't know about the things we've been talking about. Validated at the level of humanity rather than maybe the position that we take or the position we've been exploring in relation to a particular issue. We can let go of the overwhelming impact of information stacking when we allow ourselves and other people permission to not know, to not have an opinion, to not need to add another book to the reading list, to not need to watch another documentary to help and encourage one another to dig into more of what actually brings them to life personally. There's that Howard Thurman quote in there, don't ask yourself what the world needs, ask yourself what makes you come alive and go and do that because what the world needs is people who've come alive. And this kind of feels relevant here as well. There are two sides to what the world needs, I think. Um, I think those, (laughs) the what the world needs, it means two different things within that quote, potentially. There's what the world needs from a propping up the systems and the structures of power, um, you know, us to become overrun by information, numbed, desensitized, disconnected. And there's what humanity needs. We need people who are alive, engaged, connected to the joy of life. But yeah, don't ask yourself what the world needs, because the world needs you to play it safe or to get bogged down in information hoarding and distracted by futile debates about things that alienate us from ourselves and alienate us from one another. But by asking yourself what makes you come alive and going and doing that, actually that is what we all need. That's what we need from you. That's what you need from me. That's what we all need from one another. What if we focus our energy on things that give us a sense of meaning or take us away from our usual routines and ruts and the things that land us nestled up against that tree on the side of the road when we don't want to be there. In the Haven, we spoke about um, my trip to Finland in March and and how this was a proper bucket emptying experience um, for both me and Tula. Actually, you know, it took me outside of my environment, my normal way of operating. It was like this beautiful reset that cleared my mind and gave me clarity about what Um, I wanted to make more time for, what I wanted to uh, let go and what I wanted to connect in terms of the dots of different parts of my life so that I can, you know, affect change in the areas that I have that power to do so. And in that sense, it reminded me that we can't affect positive change everywhere, but we can do it somewhere. And we don't need everyone to care about what we care about in the same way that we care about it in order 
for it to play an important part in the human ecosystem of growth and meaningful progress. The world doesn't stop turning when we take a moment to pause and it won't get any worse because we're taking a moment to gather some strength and some perspective. In fact, it's more likely to get worse if we try operating from a place of overwhelm and overextension. From there, we might contribute to more of the problems that actually we want to overcome and eradicate. Joy doesn't require a particular product or outcome. It doesn't need things to be right. It emerges through the cracks, the stains, the imperfections of life. In fact, the things we think we need in order to be happy are usually obstacles to joy because they leave us waiting, anticipating, always seeing it as a proverbial mirage up ahead. As an undertaker, I learned that joy is found in the cracks, in the midst of death, not joy as happiness, but as connection, as laughter, as perspective. It's a place of presence because it sits in the midst of pain. Laughter might be ready to pop through the surface, not just from awkwardness when you don't know what to say, but from being able to touch our own sense of aliveness in the memories, the grief, the palpability of emotion as it sits at the surface of our awareness. We cannot help to heal anything around us if we've been cut off from accessing joy. Maybe we feel like it's inappropriate to be happy when there's so much suffering in the world. Perhaps it feels insensitive to share our joy. Or perhaps we can't allow ourselves to feel that stuff at all while things are as they are. We might know what brings us joy. We might know that, you know, where I live, the beautiful scenes around me, this season that I'm in in life, this is supposed to bring me joy but the dread from circumstances in the world can weigh heavy and leave us disconnected from our ability to feel that joy. So how do we restack our way back to connecting with the things we know give us a sense of joy? This may take quite a lot of time. We need to be patient with ourselves to start asking some simple questions of ourselves. What am I disconnected from? What do I feel disconnected from? What is missing right now? And then those three questions. What do I feel right now? What do I need right now? What would I love right now? These questions are uh, from Jacob Norby. He shares as part of this, this kind of journaling practice of increasing self-awareness in, from moment to moment. You know, we can ask ourselves these questions at any point during the day. And we talked about this in our Haven session as something several people use and really value. You know, what small thing will connect me with the joy of life today, with my sense of aliveness in today? Maybe it's just being aware of the cup of coffee that I've got in my hand, aware of the enjoyment that I have from this. Maybe it's cooking a meal that I really love, taking the kids to the park, leaving my phone at home, stacking joy, you know, making a list of all the things that would bring me joy, that have brought me joy in the past. We have to remember what brings us joy and remember to do those things, which again is a lot easier said than done. But just reminding ourselves that we like things. (laughs) So asking ourselves, what is it that I like? We talked about uh, a symptom of overwhelm being an inability to answer um, 
certainly the third of those questions, what would I love right now? But I think it, it's any of them, you know, what do I feel right now? What do I need right now? What would I love right now? The temptation to avoid the third one can be a particular message that we might need to notice in ourselves. You know, if we've lost touch with what we would love, what, would, what, would, what do I desire? That's a surefire sign that we've lost touch with something important inside of us. Our connection to our ability to feel joy. And before we can do anything effective or constructive with the news or the information flying at us from around the world, we need to find a way back to that core part of ourselves. Starting small, just connecting. What is it that I like? What do I enjoy? Start small. Find that happy place. Remember what matters. Who matters? What makes life worth living? Who makes life worth living? It might feel like those things are far away right now, impeded by these clouds of what's going on in the news. But you can only see the cloud because there's something shining, something glowing from behind it. That's your light. That's your why. That's your source. That's your vision. That's the thing that infuses even the darkest moments with a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning, a sense of hope, a sense that draws you down that road towards it. Spend some time peeping through the cloud this week, even if it's just for a moment. See what's there. All right. Well, I hope there's something in this episode that you can take forward with you. I'd love to hear from you if there is anything that has resonated in particular. Uh, if you have any questions as a result of listening, uh, please do get in touch via the website, andymort.com or through social media. Um, and yeah, I'll catch up with you again very soon. Just one more thing quickly before we finish. Because you're listening to this, I imagine you are a reflective person with a caring, creative and compassionate spirit. And I want to just quickly tell you about The Haven, which is a virtual village for quietly creative misfits just like you. Whether you're looking to build lasting friendships with other gently unconventional people or you simply need some respite from the world's noise right now, I've built The Haven for you. With its cafe, theatre, library and fireside, it's a calm bubble of support and encouragement for gentle rebels. It's currently the autumn season in the membership and we're looking at the themes of change, belonging and serenity during September, October and November. Through our conversations in the community as well as resources like the private podcast feed, videos, interviews and short courses, we dive into these themes and ask how we can build healthier, happier and more connected lives in sync with our natural gentle rhythms. Perhaps you know intuitively that there's so much more within you waiting to burst into life, but maybe you don't quite know where to start or how to bring it out in a way that feels good to you. Well, I'd love to welcome you in and show you around The Haven. You can learn more at the-haven.co or you'll find a link in the description for this episode. Take care. Bye-bye.